So as we said at the beginning of our worship, this is the first Sunday in Advent. But like that sketch shows, Advent is harder this year. It's harder to celebrate. It's harder to light a candle for any number of reasons. And each week, you're going to hear a different voice grappling with how and in what ways it is more difficult to think of Advent with hope or love or peace or joy as each Sunday in Advent signifies. And it's harder this year for any number of reasons, but maybe because the losses are more than what we've ever felt before, or, or maybe the losses are just more visible. But I think there is one loss that is greater among those who listen to the Lord and try to walk in his way, and that is in our obedience to God, maybe we've lost our adoration of God. What does it mean to adore him? Just like the carol says, oh, come let us adore him. What is what does that mean, and why is it so central, and yet what is lost if that is lost? Adoration comes from a Latin word, and it means to worship. And surely we understand adoration in that way. We also understand adoration in, in like what we do with one another out of love and respect and reverence. In fact, one of the most palpable ways we've ever felt adoration is if you've ever been to a baby shower. You just want to eat up that little thing that is growing and, and, and new and, and fresh and giving all the impression of innocence. That's what an adoration is. But what does it mean to adore the Lord? Every Sunday during Advent, we're going to look at five different texts, but they all have one thing in common. At every text, people that are going to come from a variety of backgrounds and for a variety of reasons are all going to find themselves bowing bowing before the feet of Jesus in adoration. And this Sunday, as the sketch alluded to, we're going to listen to this text where the Magi come before Jesus. They're going to throw an impromptu baby shower. And in listening to that passage, I think we're going to learn about adoration in three ways. Who is to adore him? Why do we adore him? And then maybe the question we all want to know is, what does it mean to adore him? How do we do that? Who is to adore him? Why do we adore him? What does it mean to adore him? So we're listening to Matthew chapter 2. Our problem is that we're more familiar with this text than we might want to admit, but try to listen to it as if it were the first time. Our central text for today is found in Matthew 2. 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You probably have that passage memorized. Our problem is that we are too familiar with it. As soon as you start hearing about Magi, you start singing that song. And we three kings of, shh, don't, that's, no, you're not allowed. You need to listen to this for the first time. You have to realize that when we're, when we're considering this story, that the main characters of the first 12 verses of the of Matthew chapter 2, uh, the main characters are not rabbis, uh, they're not priests, they're not even Jewish. They are the likes of the very kinds of people that existed within the court of Nebuchadnezzar, the court of Belshazzar, whom we studied in the book of Daniel. These are the folks who were always stumped by the dreams and visions that were put to them. They were supposed to be the experts. They were supposed to be the ones who would understand the deep truths of reality, and they would consult their stars and watch their patterns and look for truths in them. And every time we found them in Daniel, they didn't know what they were doing. And at the other times that they didn't know what they were doing, they were part of the class of people that were out to conspire against Daniel or to conspire against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it's, it's these folks who are front and center of this passage, and rather than their search for truth being frustrated by God, their search for truth is being granted by God. Uh, that's the nutty thing about the passage. The ones who were part of this imperialistic group who consulted the stars, and the stars were their idols, they are the ones who are being given access into God's world and God's plan. That's the astonishing thing, and it would have been most astonishing to the first ears who heard this? These magi are what in that day would have been the religious outsiders. They didn't listen to, to books about a, a living God. They, they looked up. They looked up to find the deeper truths of reality. They were outsiders. And yet it is these who are seeking for truth to whom God points his finger and says, I'm going to tell you. And that would have been a surprise. A surprise because... Uh, these are not those that you would consider an A-list of people who would receive that kind of information, which in some ways is in a part of a pattern. You know, uh, it's a teenage girl, Mary, who's been told she will conceive and bring forth a child. It's a bunch of backwater shepherds who have been announced. It's been announced to them that there is one coming, a son of David. And now here's these folks that are on the, the outward fringe, the, the, the fringe of, of religious identification, according to a Jewish perspective. And they're the ones 
that to everybody else's ears would have been a surprise. And yet, if Israel were, were, knew their Bibles well, they wouldn't have been surprised that it's the Magi who are, who are being clued in. Because if they knew the Psalms, then they would know what Psalm 87 says. First three verses of Psalm 87 just sound like total boilerplate Israelite language. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken. Now that just sounds like what you would expect to hear in the Psalms. God loves Israel. Israel loves God. It's a match made in heaven. But when you get to verse 4, well, it changes. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. He rattles off any number of nations there in Psalm 87. But what do all those nations have in common? They were all enemies of Israel. They either have been or currently were enemies of Israel. Pirates, marauders, imperialistic crusaders that came and overran Israel and carted off their people. What are we to make of that psalm as it relates to this story about the Magi? It answers a question. Who is to adore this Jesus? And the simple answer to that question is everyone. Without distinction. Without qualification. And your first clue to that fact is that the Magi, part of that imperialistic regime that overpowered Israel several centuries before, they're the ones being invited to the party. The ones who look at the stars, the, the folks that are out the drum circle at Asheville on every Friday night, they're the ones that are being invited to the party. Everyone's invited. Everyone is invited to have a seat at this table to whom God would be pleased to reveal himself. And what that is to suggest to us is that Jesus, though he is born in the eyes or in the language of the Magi as king of the Jews, he is born a king not just of the Jews, not just meant for the Jews, not just meant for an ethnic com community. He's not a regional deity. He doesn't come to behold and uphold a tribal truth. Which, friends, if there is an outlier position on our day like this day, it is to suggest that there might be a truth that is worthy of more attention than others. That somehow lays a claim on us like other truths do not. That's an outlier position in our day, as much as, saying, as much as you might say that the earth is flat. But when you listen to that possibility that who Jesus is and who is to adore him is to exist far beyond the confines of those who are Israelites, then you have to grapple with this truth. In our day, in which we, we prefer not to consider any kind of truth as having any sort of supremacy over another. In fact, that's, an, that's, a, that's a disobedience. That's, a, that's an idea worthy of cancellation. The problem is, as soon as you begin to set that truth aside, you set aside more than you ever dreamt of. It is true that the church 
has earned a reputation to be dismissed, discarded, disparaged in any number of ways, often in the way it exerts its authority. But when you dismiss the possibility that there may be a truth that is larger than others, if you are out to say that there is no truth that is not a tribal truth, then one, what about that truth that you just said? That's not a tribal truth to say that all truths are tribal. But more importantly, when you say that all truths are tribal, then what you've said is that there is no path to ever seeking that one thing that all of us are talking about these days, and that is justness, justice. If you want to tell me, if you want to enshrine in law the idea of dignity and equality and respect, then you have to, you have to provide for me a truth and an argument for why anybody should ascribe to anyone dignity and equality and respect. But if every truth is tribal, then there is no possibility for that one thing that everybody is so demanding of this day. The Magi have come to worship. And they have come to worship him because they believe him to be a king like no other king. And from that truth, as, as briefly as it is stated, we can gather that who is to adore him? Anyone that would. That's the first point I think this truth is out to tell us about the nature of adoration. So that's who's to adore him, but why? Why is he worthy of adoration? That's the second question. And, and to answer that second question, in part, we, we switch to the other main character of the moment. That would be Herod. Herod is an ancient figure. He's an ancient king. And yet he is the perfect cosmopolitan modern figure of our day. As, as one um, historical analyst of, of Herod observed, he is, he is racially Arab. He is religiously Jewish. He is culturally Greek, and he is politically Roman. I mean, he is all over the map. The, the list of things that he could claim on his uh, census form would be amazing, but although he'd be the one to put out the census. So Herod is your guy. Herod is the king. He's installed by Rome to keep Israel in line. Israel is an occupied people. Rome's there. The Magi hit town. They announce to everyone that they see in Jerusalem that they are on a search for a king, a star has told them. And everybody goes, really? Well, news comes back to Herod, and as you heard in the story, Herod and everybody in Jerusalem is troubled. If you're the king of the day, and you hear that there's another king that's been born, and you weren't sent the memo, then you start to feel troubled and a little bit threatened, and surely he demonstrates that. And if you're Jerusalem, and you hear about the possibility of a rival king coming on the scene, and the idea of a little palace intrigue sweeping into your world, then yes, you're a little troubled too, because when coups happen, it never goes well for anybody. It's never a very enjoyable experience. But in that moment, Herod gets there, and when, when he hears about the, the, the place, the, the announcement of a king, He's curious. He wants to know more. And the Magi come up and tell him. And at this point, we understand why Jesus, this child born to be king, is worthy of adoration from what we, hear, what we see Herod do. He hears, the he hears the news. He freaks out about that. And he immediately he consults his rabbinical class. He asks the rabbis, those who know the law, those who know the scripture, what do you know about this anointed one that we've all been hearing about for a very long time, where does this one come from? And immediately the rabbis go, totally know where that is. They turn to Micah chapter 5, and what does Micah chapter 5 say? He's going to come from Bethlehem. From Bethlehem. 
Interesting, interesting choice. Not exactly a major town, but that's where this anointed one is coming from. And that is a prophecy that had been uttered eight centuries earlier. And here gets to you to the first reason why an Israelite would be, why would they think that Jesus was worthy of adoration? Because if you've been waiting for eight centuries about somebody that you thought was worth waiting for, that's a buildup. That's a buildup. That's an anticipation. Look, um, when, when children are born, when, when mothers and fathers, uh, when, when, the, when the child comes forth, they're in the delivery room, why do they weep? Why are they just lost in the moment? Why do they feel like time has stopped to, to observe that? You know, if, 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 a, if a child was born after, you know, nine hours, then that would be something. But can you imagine waiting 10 months for that new life? It's a whole different experience. The buildup is there, and then finally there, this, this astonishing thing called life is in your midst, but because you've had to wait for so long, now, now you feel like this is something that was worth waiting for, and it's worthy of your adoration. To an Israelite idea, to an Israelite point of view, this Jesus is worthy of adoration because we've been waiting for a very long time. He was long anticipated. Come thou long-expected Jesus. It's the deal. We don't just write songs for no reason. It's because he was the one they were waiting for. But what exactly, though, were they waiting for in him? It's an anointed one. So he's, he's set apart for God's own purposes. But why, why were they anticipating him? Why were they looking forward to him? Because this is one, it says there in Micah, the rabbis say, who was a ruler that had come to shepherd the people. To our ears, that might sound like, wow, what's the, what's the big deal over that? But, but the rabbis have believed what these magi are now thrilled to hear, but which has now come to distress Herod. That, look, when it comes to a ruler, most people think about uh, those who rule them, they are to submit to. But why? Why would you ever think about adoring one who had come to rule? What is it about this ruler, known to be a shepherd, that you would consider adoring him in a particular way, that you would love him? Well, because for one reason, most rulers, many rulers, end up ruling for whose good? Their own. And yet there are some rulers who rule for the good of those who they rule over. It's the nature of their rule. And Israel knew both kinds of rulers, and mostly they knew the worst kind of ruler, more so than they knew the ones that they would want to trust and entrust themselves to. And so this ruler, who would be a shepherd, he, he had been anticipated as one who would far exceed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Joshua and Daniel and all of those. They all had something to their story, but this one, they would, were told, would come to rule them like no one ever had. He would come to feed them. He would come to heal them. He would come to protect them. Now, Look, um, you've had bosses, and you've had teachers, you've had any number of people perhaps in your life who have had some sort of authority over you, and, and you answered to their authority, and yet, the ones you most remember, the ones that you cherish, were the ones who never had to remind you that they had authority over you, because what they were most animated by was to use their authority to nurture you to bless you, to prepare you, to cultivate you. It was the nature of their authority over you. That's why you entrusted yourself to them. But the ones you remember are the ones who were never having to remind you, hey, I'm the one who's in charge here. 
but you willingly gave to them that authority because they used that authority for your good and not their own. And that's why you remember them. And that's why these magi and anybody who might come to the throne of Jesus would believe that he was worthy of adoration. The magi didn't have a clue what his rule would be like. They just had a clue that he would be one who would rule. But then as you unwind the tape about Jesus' form of rule, you realize, yes, his ruling would be like a shepherd. He is worthy of adoration because he had been anticipated. He was worthy of adoration because he was a ruler that would come to shepherd. But thirdly, and perhaps what is mostly important for our day, is that Jesus was worthy of adoration because he came to disturb that which needed to be disturbed. Let me say that again. He came to disturb that which needed to be disturbed. What the Magi have heard, both in the star and from the report of the rabbis, has thrilled them to no end, and it has disturbed Herod to no end, which then sets off all manner of the bad stuff coming from Herod, the, the cunning, the deceit, the treachery, the, the promise, oh, brothers, go see him and then report back to me. See, whenever you listen very closely, you do a very close reading of this passage, uh, Herod, every time he is mentioned, is spoken of as the king, King Herod. And yet every time Jesus is mentioned, he is also referred to as a king. And so we have a king versus a king here, a collision. And yet what happens after the Magi meet Jesus there with his mother and his father, at no other time is Herod referred to as the king. And here's the irony of it. If you know the backstory to King Herod, then you know that he had three of his own sons murdered so that he could retain his throne. He had his own flesh and blood killed so that he could keep his throne. And the irony is, here is Jesus, who eventually will let himself be killed in order to gain his throne. One who killed to keep it, and one who let himself be killed in order to gain it. That's the gospel. That's where Advent is pointing. And that is why he is worthy to be adored. He is the one who was born to be a king. He was the one who was born to teach us what it meant both to have power and to show power, but he was most of all born to die. He was born to die so that we could think of death differently. He was born to die that though we die, yet shall we live. He was born to die so that we might not fear death, and even though we will face it and enter into it until unless he comes back before then, we don't have to think of it in the same way. He has come to disturb and upend a conventional wisdom and a conventional way of thinking about power. And in that sense, it makes him more than just interesting, and it makes him more than just compelling. It makes him beautiful. And when we see him as beautiful, we understand him as adorable. That's why we adore him. But that all raises one last question. How? What does it mean to adore him? The Magi exit the stage as quickly as they enter it. You will not hear from them again. But if you want to look at what it is to adore, what adoration is through their lens, then to borrow another metaphor in, in short order, adoration is sort of a constellation of things. 
it's a number of things that when you see together, you say oh, that's adoration. And I think adoration, as according to the Magi there, is they had to be drawn to it. This star had to catch their eye, and they had to follow it, but they wouldn't follow what they had not seen, and what had been shown them is what was supposed to drive them to adoration. So being drawn to that is, is, a, is requisite for adoration, but, but so is the recognition that on the way to adoring this one who was king, there would be obstacles in their way, things that would be out to impede their way and distract them from their path. And along the way, they would also be met with things that were out to compete for their allegiance, to compete for their loyalty, to compete for their adoration. Herod is in that way sort of a metaphor for wherever someone would consider what it is to adore the Lord, that there's stuff in your way and there'll be plenty of things that you can find as a substitute for adoration. But I think the one thing that maybe brings it all to fruition here is what happens when they see the star again after they've been told it's in Bethlehem? They rejoice. They rejoice. They rejoice with exceeding joy. You, you can't emphasize the amount of their joy already. Why? Look, uh, some of you have been to a Clemson game, and Clemson game, and some of you have seen a kid hit a home run, and some of you are teachers who have seen a student finally get an idea that you've worked with them forever, and, and others of you have, have seen fit to, to see something come to fruition, and finally it did, and in that moment, you just you erupt with joy, you erupt with, with excitement, because everything that you'd worked for had finally come to fruition, and, and for that moment, that instant, everything that was burdening you, everything that was troubling you was sort of gone for a moment. It evaporated, and there was joy. And, and the Magi here in this moment, it's like they send up a signal flare of joy because there it is. The star has led them to confirm to them what, what Micah had been told the rabbis in Micah chapter 5, and they're there. And it's not like that joy meant that all of their troubles were gone. I mean, it's within a few verses that they are realizing through a dream that they are hunted men, that Herod will want their hide for not coming back to report back. So it's not like they're, all their troubles disappear, but this joy, it's real, and it's part of adoration. And Elizabeth Elliot said something really profound once about joy. She says, joy is not the absence of trouble. It's the presence of God. That's joy, and, and that's, where ador that's where adoration comes from, out of that joy. But if you want to see it most vividly, in, in the eyes and the experiences and, and what happened there with the Magi, all you have to do is listen to verse 10. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. That's adoration. It's a spectacle, to be sure. Wise, brilliant, wealthy, likely, adventurous, knowledgeable, seasoned people. They set everything aside and they bow down before a child they've never met. It's a spectacle. But in that is adoration. Jesus in that moment is something more than an argument for them. He is one worthy of bowing before. Why do I say that what they're uh, demonstrating in that moment is that Jesus is something more than an argument. You value arguments, and, and we all value evidence, and, and those things are important. And therefore, we, we derive a reason for believing in Jesus, all sorts of reasons. 
But adoration is something more than reasons. There's a story I read last week. She's a Catholic nun. Her name is Carino Hodder. And she wrote an essay asking, did the disciples ever tell their conversion story? Did they ever go around telling everybody about their conversion story? She was sort of asked that question because when she came to faith as a young woman at the age of 19, she felt this compulsion to always tell her conversion story. And we all understand that. We, some of us are familiar with that. Some of us can rattle that off. What was the point at which we came to realize that we believed, believed that Jesus was Lord? But as she reflects many decades later, after that time in which she came to trust him, she realized that maybe there was something missing in her whole thinking about conversion stories. She said this about herself, um, about that younger self of her. She said this, I feel sufficiently kind toward that 19-year-old that I can read my then conversion story nowadays without too much embarrassment. When I do, in my account of my conversion, I find not God, but arguments for God. I had enough maturity to refrain from making myself the object of my writing, but nevertheless, its object was not Christ. It was Christian credibility. God may have found me, but it seemed more important that I had found proofs for him. Do you hear the distinction? You can believe Christ to be plausible, and, and, and no one who believes in him doesn't think that he's implausible. But if all you do is rest on his plausibility, you miss what the Magi are doing in that moment. They are not celebrating his plausibility. They are celebrating something far more beautiful and perhaps something that defies categorization or words. And that's why that same Roman Catholic nun writes this. I want to go back and tell that teenager who wrote down her conversion story with such conclusive certainty that she now has enough material for 10 or 20 essays on conversion. I want to tell her of the depth, height, and breadth of conversion to Christ, joyous and painful, which is far beyond anything she could have comprehended, and yet nothing compared to what the next decades will hold for her. She understands now more what adoration is and how it's something more than an argument. It's not without an argument. It's not less than an argument, but it is more than one. And when we understand adoration to be that, we realize that he is something more than even our best proofs can muster. Adoration is that and you derive that just from the way they fall upon their feet, on their, on, their, on their own knees before him. If there's one last thing I might say about what adoration is, it is what they also demonstrate by bowing before him. Adoration is more than an argument. It's beyond an argument. But it is at the same time utterly an expression of self-forgetfulness. They are bowing before the one to whom they believe is a king, and they are giving absolutely no thought to themselves. It is utterly without concern for themselves that they bow before the one who is a child. Why do I need to say that? Why does that give us any illumination as to the nature of adoration or what it means to adore? It's this, because you and I know one thing. We know who we most adore most of the time, and that's us. We're the first and last thing on our, each other's mind, and we, we do everything perhaps to adore ourselves, even when we are unaware of that. And when we remember that, it's actually possible to forget ourselves and to remember him. 
For they are not thinking of themselves at all. They are not taking selfies of themselves. Look, we're here with the new king born to be king of the Jews. They have nothing to do with it. They're not at the center of it. He is at the center alone. Why do I need to say that? Because maybe as a point of my own confession and concession to you, and maybe because I speak to many of you who are creators and who like to speak for him and who are artists, there is a subtle distinction that we need to understand between those of us who want to give attention to him and those of us who want to adore him. If you saw the online performance of The Great Divorce last weekend, then you realize that Max McLean included in his rendition of that novel, or that short story actually that C.S. Lewis writes, he included one scene, and if you remember the backstory, you know that the, the Great Divorce is all about a bunch of people who live in hell who take a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven. And they all, each one of them, go through their own challenge about whether they're going to go higher up and deeper into the nature of heaven or if they're going to return back and enter into their own self-contained world that is hell. And one of the, the people that uh, comes to the outskirts of heaven that begins to want to experience what's there is an artist, a painter. And, and she, she begins to sort of... Uh, expressed great disappointment that she forgot to bring her painting stuff with her there. And, and the bright spirit who has come to explain to her the nature of what heaven is, the nature of who God is, he's there to tell her, oh, you won't be painting here on the front end. You won't need to. And, and she becomes not just disappointed with that, she becomes angry with it. And she wonders, why is it that I wouldn't be able to paint? Why can't I give um, uh, an expression to the beauty that I see? And the bright spirit says this to her. Why? If you're interested in the country only for the sake of painting it, you'll never learn to see the country. Light itself was your first love. You loved paint only as a means of telling about light. Every poet and musician and artist, but for grace, is drawn away from the love of the thing he tells to love of the telling till down in deep hell they cannot be interested in God at all, but only in what they say about him. To adore him is to adore him, not our expressions of him, as clear and as bright and as impressive as they may be. And there is a subtle distinction between those two things, and yet there's as much difference between them as the East is from the West. Robert Bringhurst is a Canadian poet. I've read this line to you from one of his poems called These Poems, She Said. And he says this in the poem, Love means love of the thing sung, not of the song or of the singing. There's a way to be captivated by the expressions that somehow lose sight of the, the object of your attention and of your affection. And what these magi show us by bowing down before this king and forgetting themselves is that true adoration has no thought of themselves in it. And when that happens, when you are clear about who the adoration is worth of, who, who is worthy of that adoration, and how that adoration is far more than any argument, then you are at last free. Free to be extravagant, free to be generous with your gold, your frankincense, your myrrh, and your whole person. That's the mark of adoration, is when you are so self-forgetful that you don't mind what is given, because what you have found is far greater than what you might give away. So how are we going to do this together? What will our journey of Advent be like? Starting tomorrow, 
a number of the creators in this body are going to share with you their reflections upon the nature of adoration or in its absence, especially in the season in which we feel its absence more, more poignantly than its presence. So each day there'll be a new creation, Mondays through Saturdays, in which you can hear or read or observe someone speaking in a way to lead you to a place of adoration that is not only a gift from God, but is something that we cultivate in his presence. But not to make it so abstract and, and not to make it like it sound like it's an impossible climb. Let me leave you with one last thought about the nature of adoration from C.S. Lewis again, who in a letter he wrote to a friend named Malcolm, and he was writing about prayer. Uh, the opening of that line, I think, resonates very much with how we're thinking of our day in this season when he wrote this. People are merely amusing themselves by asking for the patience which a famine or a persecution would call for if, in the meantime, the weather and every other inconvenience sets them grumbling. One must learn to walk before one can run. Does not that sound like perhaps our day in which everything that we contend with becomes a matter for grumbling? So what's our hope? How could we ever think that we'll ever adore him as he is worth if we have a hard time adoring anything, even the smallest things? Listen to how Lewis finishes his thought. We, or at least I, shall not be able to adore God on the highest occasions if we have learned no habit of doing so on the lowest. At best, our faith and reason will tell us that he is adorable, but we shall not have found him so, not have tasted and seen. Any patch of sunlight in a wood will show you something about the sun which you could never get from reading books on astronomy. These pure and spontaneous pleasures are patches of godlight in the woods of our experience. What's he saying? Learn to adore the little things, beloved. Learn to adore the simple pleasures. Learn to adore the things that have been a cause for an inconvenience because that is as much preparatory for adoring him as he is due as anything else. Oh, come let us adore him. 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 Christ the Lord. Amen.